Well, it's a sad time of year for many of us because uh, in a week, football season will be officially over, which means that we have to wait another seven months or so for the new season to kick off. College football ended the 1st of January, and next week we'll have the Super Bowl. So we're a week away from having a new Super Bowl champion. And those of you all who have been keeping up, you know it's going to either be Seattle or New England. And it could be anyone's game if they keep the ball out of the hands of New England before the game starts. And uh, keep the balls the right size, right? Yeah. For those of you all New England fans, hopefully there's none this far south, but I apologize. And uh, though these teams have been preparing all last week and they'll prepare again all this week for this upcoming game, their preparation for next week's game began shortly after last season. Those of y'all that, that keep up with football, you know that the offseason is when teams from the NFL began preparing to win a championship. And the offseason is when they make all the necessary personnel changes. And depending upon those personnel changes, you might have certain changes to the offense or, or defense. And it's also in the, in the offseason when they have their players in the weight room and in the gym, getting prepared physically for the upcoming season. And this is also the time when trades are being made and players are being drafted to give those certain teams an added edge offensively and defensively so that they can get to that last game and win a championship. It's, it's in the offseason when they begin preparing for how they're to play during the regular season. If you have your Bibles, turn to Acts chapter 1. You're probably wondering where I'm going with this, right? Well, we're finishing up Acts chapter 1 this morning, and we're going to be looking at verses 12 through 26. And as we learned last week, and we'll see again this week, the disciples are in the off-season of ministry. In chapter 1, they're making all the proper preparations that are needed for them to do this great work of ministry. It's a very important time. Last week, we looked at verses 1 through 11. We explained that before sending his followers to do the work of ministry, before sending them out to Jerusalem and on to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth, the Lord Jesus spent time during his post-resurrection ministry, after his resurrection, before he leaves them, before his ascension, he spends that time preparing his followers for this great work of ministry. First, he taught them. He explained to them everything they needed to know about God's gospel. Everything they needed to know about his person and his work and how to advance his kingdom and how to live as his kingdom people. He also appeared to them. We're told that he presented himself alive to them by many proofs. Christ made it obvious that he had been raised to life again. He sat with them, he talked with them, he ate with them, he allowed them to touch his wounds of crucifixion, and he did so 
for an extended period of time. And he did so so that they would have confidence in him as the risen Lord. And so that they would then go out and be strong witnesses for him. We're told also that he refused them. Said last week that after seeing the risen Christ and being instructed by him on the facts of his person and his work, and, and after commissioning them, I'm sure many of them are ready to get after it in ministry, don't you? But we're told in verse 4 that Christ tells them to wait. He says, don't do anything yet. Wait in Jerusalem for the promise of the Father, for the Holy Spirit. Jesus knew that his disciples were absolutely helpless and hopeless on their own. They needed to be empowered on high by the Holy Spirit, and that's why he tells them to wait. He also kept certain truths from them. They wanted to know if the time was drawing near for God's kingdom to come in its fullness, but that truth was kept from them. Jesus says, this is not for you to know. It's not for you to know the time or the season that the Father is fixed by his own authority. And the reason why he didn't want them speculating over dates and times is because he just wanted them to be ready at all times. He wanted them to live each day as if it was their last. He wanted them to live every moment as if Christ was coming in the next. He wanted them to be busy for the rest of their lives doing what he had called them to do until his return. And after that, after teaching them and, and appearing to them and refusing them and keeping certain truths from them, we're told Christ commissioned them. He called for them to be his witnesses and to go out and to make this message known and to make him known, not just in Jerusalem, but on to Judea and Samaria and on to the ends of the earth. And after all of these things... Christ leaves. We have his ascension. And after that, we're told that God sends his messengers to these men and they come and they make it known that Christ is coming back once again. They, they tell them, why are you? They ask them, why are you looking up longingly as if he's not coming back? Christ is coming back. So they promise his return. And then those men, we learn, they go out from there. And they're empowered by the Holy Spirit a few days after. And they make an impact in the world for Christ. That's where we left off last week. In our passage for today, we're going to learn, before they're empowered on high by the Holy Spirit, there's one final thing that needs to happen before they're ready to go out and do this great work of ministry. After having the right message and the right manifestation of Christ and the right might and the right mystery and the right mission, they need the right men to do this great work of ministry. The right men for this great work of ministry. Or in this case, they need the right man so that they have the right men. There were 12 disciples chosen and one fell away. Judas was a traitor, but it was in God's plan for there to be these 12. So Judas Iscariot needed to be replaced. The ranks needed to be filled in, and that's what happens here at the end of chapter 
one. This was the final piece of the puzzle, the final act of preparation that needed to happen before the Holy Spirit was poured out in Acts 2 and this great work of ministry begins. So we're going to be looking at this passage this morning on this choosing of this disciple in verses 12 through 26. What I've done this morning is I've divided this passage up into three sections. I want you to notice the obedience of the disciples, the rejection of a disciple, and the selection of a disciple. So there's your outline there if you want to go ahead and fill it in. Notice first the obedience of the disciples. Look at verses 12 through 14. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. And when they had entered, they went in up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. Now watch this. You know how I know that these right here, these men and women, are the right men and women to take God's gospel message to the ends of the earth? The reason why I know these individuals are the right individuals for the job, two things. Number one, they knew the word of the Lord And number two, they were obedient to it. They submitted to it. Notice what they did. They did exactly what Jesus told them to do. Did they not? First notice, they returned to Jerusalem. Jesus told them in Acts 1-4 to not leave Jerusalem, but to wait on the Holy Spirit. He also said in Luke 24-49, Behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city in Jerusalem until you are clothed with power from on high. And that's exactly what they did. They returned to Jerusalem and they waited. Now, though we're told that they stayed up in this upper room in the city, did they just sit there like you would in a doctor's office, reading a magazine, waiting for God to do something? Is that what we have here? No. Notice what they did while they waited. We're told they gathered together for worship. We're told that they devoted themselves to prayer. We're told that Peter was preaching and teaching during this time. They weren't just sitting around in the upper room somewhere just doing nothing until God did something. They were meeting together. They were worshiping the Lord together. They were of one accord. They were unified, praying together, devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching together. Notice you have a list of some of the main ones who were with them at this time. You have the 12 minus 1. Judas had dropped out. You have Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot and Judas, not Iscariot, of course, but the son of James. And they were not the only ones. Notice you also had the women with them. Now, who is Luke referring to here when he talks about the women? 
Well, it could have been some of their wives, but many commentators also believe that this was a reference to the women who were always with Jesus. Mary Magdalene, Mary the wife of Clopas, Mary and Martha, Salome, and notice you have Mary the mother of Jesus mentioned separately. Luke also mentions that Jesus' brothers were there as well. Now, when did they become followers of Christ? Because remember, in John chapter 7, verse 5, we're told that Jesus' brothers, his own blood brothers, did not believe in him at first. Well, we're not given a, a detailed account here of their conversion, but, but it could have been after Jesus appears to James, which Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians fifteen seven. There were probably among the 500 could have been among the 500 that Paul says saw the risen Christ at one time. So sometime during Jesus' post-resurrection ministry, they became followers of him. And we know two by name, right? We know Jude, who wrote the epistle of Jude. And we also have James, who wrote James and was one of the pastors of Fellowship Bible Church in Jerusalem, right? Yeah. So you have... The who's who in the early church, all meeting together, Jesus' mother and his brothers, disciples and close friends, were told that the total was around 120. They were meeting together at this time. That's a pretty small group, isn't it? That's half the size of our church. Luke tells us that God used this small group through the power of his Holy Spirit to take his gospel and advance his kingdom all over the known world. And again, notice what we're told here about this group and what they were doing until the Spirit of God was poured out in Jerusalem. We're told that they were unified and they were worshipful and they were obedient. They were of one accord and they were committed to meeting together and being taught the word of the Lord from his apostles. They were, they, were, they were committed to Christ's teachings, to the apostles' teachings, and they were devoted to prayer, and they were unified. Folks, get this. If 120 soon-to-be spirit-filled people were unified, who were unified and worshipful, if they could advance God's kingdom across the known world, what could 220 to 240 do in East Texas. You get that? We've heard it said before that there's strength in numbers, but that's not always the case, is it? If a large group of people are unfaithful to do what God has called them to do, and if they're at odds with one another, the larger the group, the weaker the group. What we learn in Scripture is that there is strength in a unified and faithful body of believers. That's where the strength is. And that's what we have here. And so, church, there's a very simple, clear application to be made by you and by me individually and by us as a church corporately. As we wait... For God to fulfill the promises that he has made for us. All the promises, many have been fulfilled. As we wait for the rest, we're to be busy serving him and doing what he has called us to do. Many of us are so caught up in what is past or what's to come that we're standing still in the present. It's very true. 
Folks, Christ has clearly told us what we're to be doing as believers until he comes back. He told us we're to be his witnesses. We're to be going out. We're to be making him known where he is not known. We're to be making disciples as we're going throughout our daily lives. And to be efficiently equipped to do that, we're to be studying his word. We're to be committing to coming here to to meet together as his people, studying his word together, devoting ourselves to, to prayer and meeting with other believers, sharpening one another, pushing one another to move forward in our faith and to become more like Christ. That's what we're called to be doing until he returns. Christ's early disciples got this. Till the Spirit of God was poured out as they waited, they were faithful to do what Christ had called them to do. And after they're empowered on high by the Holy Spirit, they continued in obedience. They continued as they waited for Christ return to take the gospel out they were his witnesses throughout the world and they made disciples everywhere and they started churches all over the known world that's how we know these men and women were the right men and women for god's gospel ministry another thing we have here another reason why we can have confidence in this group is not just because of who they had but who they were missing Notice the rejection of a disciple. Point number two, look at, look at verse 15. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120 and said, and then he begins to preach. And we'll get to his message in just a moment. But before we go there, let me say this. I believe Peter is speaking under divine inspiration here. It's very important that I make that point. Because some believe Peter makes a mistake at the end of Acts 1, not in what he says about Judas, but in choosing Matthias to replace Judas. I don't believe that for a second. I think that position doesn't have a biblical leg to stand on, just being honest, okay? Now, I'll explain that position here a bit further in a moment. I'm going to go into great detail because Matthias is a main part of this passage here, okay? But first, I wanted to make that point. I believe Peter is speaking God's words here. Notice he recites the Old Testament when he talks about Judas, which brings up an interesting point. Did you know that Judas's betrayal was no surprise to God? Did y'all know that? Remember Jesus said in John 17, 12, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction. That's Judas. That the scripture might be fulfilled. Did you know the betrayal of Judas was planned into the plan of salvation? Now, God didn't make Judas betray Jesus. He doesn't cause evil. He's not the author of evil. But he certainly in his sovereignty allows it and he uses it for his redemptive purposes. And God planned what Judas would do into his redemptive plan. And that should comfort you and me. Nothing takes God by surprise. Nothing thwarts his plan. And we see this all throughout the scriptures. God using godless men throughout his word to bring about and to accomplish his purposes. And we see that in Judas's betrayal. 
He used an ungodly Judas to bring about a godly end. That's how he works. He's not the author of evil. He doesn't cause it, but he certainly allows it and uses it for his redemptive purposes. Peter understood this, which is why he says what he does here. Look at verse 16 and 17. Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. So notice here, Peter says that the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David, which, by the way, you get a great glimpse here at the way divine inspiration works here, don't you? In verse 16, the Spirit of God speaks the Word of God through the people of God. And here, Peter says that the Spirit of God spoke about Judas through David. Isn't that interesting? So Peter makes it clear here. He's not speaking his own words. This is not old Peter shooting off at the mouth. His words are right out of the Old Testament. His words about Judas are from David. And David's words about Judas are from the Holy Spirit. In verse 17, Peter says, Judas was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Judas, like Peter and James and John and Andrew and Thomas and the rest, was called by Christ to be his disciple. He was numbered among the 12. And some will then ask, well, then was he a believer? No. No, he wasn't. And some will ask, well, how do you know? Well, one reason we know John chapter 6, verse 64. Jesus says this, But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. He's talking about Judas here. In the same breath, he's talking about those who do not believe. And we're told in Scripture that it would have been better had Judas had never been born. Now let me ask you this. If Judas' betrayal sent Christ to the cross, if that led to Judas's salvation, why would it have been better had he never been born? You don't hear that about Peter, who betrayed Jesus. You don't hear that about Paul, who rejected him for a time and persecuted Christians. And the reason why is because they repented and they were restored to God. Judas was not. No, Judas admitted guilt, his repentance, get this, was on the basis that Jesus wasn't a criminal. Not on the basis that he was the son of God. There's a difference. In Matthew 27, 4, Judas says, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. He doesn't say I've sinned because I betrayed the son of God. Judas was sorry because he believed Jesus was an innocent man. And his betrayal led to his death. That's the same as Pilate. Pilate believed Jesus was an innocent man, didn't believe he was the son of God. That's what Judas is saying here. Did not believe he was the Christ. For all those reasons and more, we're not going to see Judas in glory, and it's tragic. It's one of the most tragic in all of Scripture. Notice how terrible Judas' death was. Peter says in Acts 1.18, Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his bowels gushed out. Pretty grotesque, isn't it? 
You remember the story? Judas rejected Jesus, betrayed him, sold him out for 30 pieces of silver. And in Matthew's account, we learn that Judas feels remorse after betraying an innocent man and, and getting him killed. So he tries to return the money. But they don't want that money either. They don't want that blood money. So he takes it and he throws it into the temple. And the officials decide they don't want that blood money either. So they take the money and they go and they purchase a field. And in Matthew chapter chapter 27, we're told that that field is called Potter's Field, also known as the Field of Blood, because it was purchased with the innocent blood of Jesus at his expense. Notice it says that Judas falls headlong and burst open and all his bowels spill out. Either the rope or the branch or both broke, gave way, he fell down on the rocks below, died a horrible and messy death. What a tragedy. He was, he was called by Christ. He walked with him, yet he remained crooked and unrepentant and betrayed him and exited this life in a botched suicide. It's tragic, isn't it? But Peter realizes when examining the scriptures that Judas's life, though tragic, did not take God by surprise. His life, his betrayal, his death was prophesied by David in Psalm 69. He says, for it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it. And then notice Peter also knows what they're to do next. And he quotes the Old Testament to get the, the, the answer on what they're to do next. He quotes Psalm 109 and he says, let another take his office. So you have a, the rejection of a disciple. Though you have that, you also have a selection of another. That's point number three. Notice the selection of a disciple. Peter knew from Scripture that there was to be one to take Judas's place, and that's what we have here in the choosing of Matthias. Now, like I said earlier, there are many who believe that Peter and the disciples get it wrong here in choosing Matthias. Listen, there is nowhere that is found in the scriptures. There's nowhere we're told that in the text. You would think that if they made a mistake, Luke would highlight this mistake if it was a mistake, but he doesn't. Then why does he mention it here? I think it's obvious. He's making a contrast between Judas and Matthias. And he's showing us here that Judas Iscariot dropping out didn't take God by surprise. His exit and Matthias's entrance into the 12 was all a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. It's a fulfillment of Scripture. Listen to what Dr. John Polehill from Southern Seminary said about it. This is in the ESV Study Bible. He says, Judas's death was the fulfillment of Psalm 69, 25, and his place among the disciples was now empty. The selection of Matthias, Acts 1, 26, as the 12th apostle, was a direct fulfillment of prophecy, Psalm 109, 8, and was carried out under the direction of the Lord. I agree completely. Some argue, though, that Peter and the disciples get it wrong here and that Jesus corrects their mistake with Paul. You mean to tell me that Peter, 
who is speaking, like we were just talking about earlier, under divine inspiration, then gets it wrong in the application and Luke doesn't highlight it? Remember when he did that before? He said, you are the Christ, right? Jesus says, yeah, Peter, those words are not your own, right? But then Peter, just a, a little bit later, tries to get in the way of Christ heading to the cross. And then what does Jesus say? Get behind me, Satan, right? Yeah. So there you have a highlighted mistake by Peter. But you don't have that here. You don't have that here. It doesn't say that. And it doesn't say that he was wrong in that Christ corrected the mistake by choosing Paul. Where does it say that? Paul never refers to himself as one of the 12, does he? And when he says, I'm the least of the apostles in 1 Corinthians 15, he doesn't say, except for Matthias, I replaced him. He doesn't say that. Paul, though an apostle, get this, was an apostle of a different order. He was an apostle to the Gentiles. And by the way, those who argue that there could only be 12 apostles missed the fact that Barnabas was an apostle. Did you know that? Acts 14, 14 Luke says this, but when the apostles, plural, Barnabas and Paul. Barnabas was an apostle. Did you know that? Acts 14, 14 affirms that. They were both apostles, but of of a different order to the Gentiles. And notice here, if Peter is giving us criteria here in Acts 1 for what it takes to be one of the original 12, one of the 12, in verses 21 through 26, which I believe that he is, Paul doesn't fit the bill here. He doesn't. Look at it. Verse 21, Acts 1. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two that fit the bill. Joseph called Bersabbas, who was also called Justice and Matthias. And they prayed, that's key, and said, you, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. Do you think they would actually get it wrong after all that? And Luke wouldn't highlight it? Folks, again, like I said, if this is criteria for what it takes to be a replacement for for Judas, Paul doesn't fit the description here. He wasn't with the disciples throughout Jesus' earthly ministry. He wasn't with them at the baptism of John until the day he was taken up. He was chosen by Christ directly and was a witness to Christ's resurrection, but after his ascension. That's grounds for Paul to be an apostle, but he's an apostle of a different order to the Gentiles. And I'm going to continue on just a little bit further. Bear with me because this is a, Matthias is a big part of the text, so I have to address this, this view. Some will argue that the reason Matthias is not a true disciple is because you don't hear anything about him after Acts chapter 1. People argue you never hear about Matthias again in the, in the scriptures, so he they must not have gotten it right with him. Well, if that's true, tell me about Bartholomew. 
from the scriptures. Anybody want to take that on? Or Thaddeus. You know, we, we know they were called by Christ to be his disciples, and we're obediently waiting in Jerusalem for the promise of the Father, the Holy Spirit. Do you know what, though? Matthias was right there with them. We learn it here. We learn that he was with Christ and his disciples throughout Jesus' earthly ministry and was one of the original 120 faithful who were there before being empowered on high by the Holy Spirit. So I believe Matthias was God's choice, folks. And how was he chosen? Look at verse 26. Very interesting way. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. And some will say, well, that's gambling. No, it wasn't. Wasn't any money involved here. And at times in Scripture, we're told that God reveals his will in very interesting ways. And one of those is by the casting of lots. Remember when we were in the Minor Prophets? How did those on the ship in the book of Jonah discover that Jonah was to blame for the storm? You remember that? Jonah chapter 1 verse 7. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Now, this was an Old Testament thing. In fact, this is the last time here in Acts chapter 1 that we're told they they cast lots. No need to do that now, right? Because we have the, the direction of the indwelling Holy Spirit. We have the written and completed Word of God. But at times, throughout the scriptures, God worked in unique ways to reveal his will. And one of them is by the casting of lots. One more verse. Listen to Proverbs 16.33. Proverbs 16.33. The lot is cast into the lap. That sounds pretty random, right? But every decision, it's every decision is from the Lord. It's interesting, isn't it? And again... Notice here as well that the disciples were earnestly seeking God's man. We're we're told here that they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you've chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. They were earnestly seeking God's man, and I believe they got him. No, we don't know much more about Matthias in the scriptures. History tells us that he continued to faithfully serve the Lord and he ministered in Judea. He was an apostle. He was a committed Christian and he gave his life for the cause of Christ. History tells us that Matthias was not only stoned to death, but after that he was beheaded for Christ. What a contrast. Judas died a traitor. Matthias died a martyr. Judas in hell, Luke mentions it in a nice way. He says he went to his own place. And Matthias in glory with Christ. And here at the end of chapter 1, we see that the, the ranks are filled and the stage is set for the Spirit of God to come. We'll talk about that next week. Let me end with this. As we consider the stark contrast 
between these two disciples, between Judas and Matthias, there is a glaringly obvious and easy application to be made here by us, isn't there? When looking at these two disciples, we learn that we're not to be a Judas. We are not to be a Judas. There are many Judases in the church today. Do you know that? Sad but true. There is. There are many who have grown up in and around Jesus. They've grown up hearing about Jesus, but they've never given their lives up and over to him. Like Judas, they have been associated with God's people. They've been involved in his ministry, but they do not belong to him. There are some in here this morning who have come to church this morning who are like that. There are some in every church. We're told in that future day, that when Christ returns, we're told they're going to be the ones who say, Lord, look at all we've done for you. Look at how often we attended church. Check the record. Look at how much we've served. Look at how much we have given to your ministry. And you know how he'll respond? Scripture tells us, on that day he will say, depart from me, I never knew you. Why? Because you never gave your life up and over to me. Folks, though, Judas did many things with God's disciples and did many things in Jesus' name. He never gave his life up and over to the king. He didn't surrender himself. He didn't give over the reins of his life. Therefore, he didn't belong to him. Do you? Scripture is clear that every one of us, like Judas, have rejected Jesus. We're told in Scripture that in sin we are conceived. And we're told in Isaiah, all we like sheep, we've gone astray. We've rejected Jesus. We come into this world as sinners condemned unclean. And Scripture is clear that without Christ, we, like Judas, remain enemies of God. God, but scripture also tells us great news, we can be forgiven, we can be restored so I want to encourage you this morning, if you're here this morning, you're still in this state, you may be here each week, but you've not given your life over to Christ, listen it's not too late as long as there is still breath in your lungs and life in your bones it's not too late to turn from your sin and give your life over to Christ and be forgiven and move from darkness to light, from death to life. But you got to give your life up. You can't love your life more than Him. You got to give it up. You got to give it up and over to Christ. You've got to make Him your Lord. If you've never made that decision, I pray, 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 pray that you would not leave here today without doing so. Let's pray.